you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. It's a well-known text of Scripture, the opening of the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes. And it's been a challenging day. I hope you don't expect it's about to get easier. <laughs> Yesterday morning, we had a men's fellowship breakfast. And suffice it to say, we had enough um, Biscuits and gravy, breakfast casserole, there was some French toast stuff, so much sausage and bacon, I said we needed to sing Free From, free from the Law, a happy condition. You know, if anybody left hungry, it was their own fault, and it was more than we could consume at one sitting. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount it is more than we're going to be able to consume at one sitting. One of the great challenges of the Sermon on the Mount is choosing for the preacher how to preach it. You can't go wrong and you can't go right. Uh, you, all, all three chapters, Matthew 5 through 7, are a solitary unit. And breaking them up into bits sort of distracts from the overall flow of the message. And yet... Without breaking them up into smaller parts, you'll never come close to plumbing the depths of the text. And so this is especially true in Jesus' introduction to the sermon, famously called the Beatitudes. It would be perfectly right for us to spend eight weeks or more on each of the eight different Beatitudes which begin this sermon. And, and to be sure, a line like, Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Y'all, that alone will preach all day. But if we did that, one sermon for the poor in spirit and one for the meek and one for uh, the pure-hearted seeing God, we would miss sort of the, the comprehensive wholeness of this introduction and this section. So to do just one at a time feels like a little too much like, you know, serving gravy without biscuits. They, they, they have to go together. They have to be together. And so all that to say, this morning's message, it's more than we're going to consume in one sitting. Thankfully, when you feed on the Word of God, it always welcomes you back for leftovers. And so my goal this morning is to sort of give us a mindset, a framework for how to process these Beatitudes and then you're free to go back and enjoy the leftovers, okay? Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile 
and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so are they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful to be in your house. We ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Please fill me with your spirit that I would speak to your people, your word, that you would teach us what we need to know. Forgive me of my sin. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. My prayer for you, my greatest desire for each of you, is that you would be spiritually bankrupt. That you would walk through every moment of your life with profound sadness. That in every conflict that you have, you would be right. That you would know that you are right. That you would have it within your power to vindicate yourself. But instead of hammering your opponent with re religious and righteous fury, you would shut your mouth and take their abuse. I hope that you feel discontent, unfulfilled, like you spend your life thinking that the most important thing that you could ever need, the very, the very object of your affection and desire is just outside of your grasp. I think the best thing for you would to be if you were so kind, so thoughtful, so honest, so genuine, so unpretentious and accommodating that the people around you just hated to be in your presence. Like they literally could not stand your guts and so they would be aggressive and spiteful and mean. Y'all excited for the rest of the sermon now? If that makes you just a tad uncomfortable, then welcome to the introduction of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And understand, this is why at the end of the sermon in Matthew 7, verse 28, it says the people were left astonished at his teaching. Like, what did we just hear? When they teach preachers and homiletics what to do is they always say it's well it's good to grab someone's attention at the beginning of the sermon with just the first few words well listen jesus is worthy of our attention this is maybe one of the most well-known texts of scripture and yet the content of the text is not at all what you would expect when you read the introduction to the sermon uh, some of what jesus says appears to be on the surface so backwards that commentators on the Sermon on the Mount use terms like counterintuitive, topsy-turvy, upside down. I mean, if this word blessed, which we'll talk about in a moment, but if this word blessed means something as simple as happy, then verse 4 begins by saying, happy are the sad, and you right away know, this is a challenge that I'm not sure I'm going to grasp. This text is hallowed ground, and approaching it is not supposed to be easy. Now, since we're talking about all eight of the Beatitudes as a whole unit, 
I want to start by just asking some preliminary questions that will help us see how Jesus uses this upside-down message in order to set us right side up. So just some basic questions. Question number one, how many kinds of people are being described here? Because there's eight Beatitudes. Like I know verse 3 through 12 gives 10 verses, but that final Beatitude is in verse 10, and then verses 11 and 12 are actually like an ex- explanation, commentary on verse 10. And so there's eight Beatitudes, and it's tempting then to say there are eight different character sets being described, eight different kinds of people, but that can't be true. When you look at how Jesus carefully crafts this list of blessings, each one of the blessed characteristics comes with a promise. So everyone is blessed are, fill in the blank, for theirs is, fill in the blank, right? So the first beatitude, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the second one, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, look down at verse 10 and look at the final beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So who gets the kingdom of heaven? I mean, if this is describing eight different kinds of people, then we have a problem because the promise in the first beatitude and the promise in the last beatitude are giving the same thing away. Right? So I want everybody here who feels like you're maybe poor in spirit, you, you guys all gather and come up here on the, the left side, and then everybody who feels like they've been persecuted for righteousness sake, come on up here and get on the right side, and when I say go, we're going to have a no-holds-barred fight for who gets the kingdom of heaven. Of course not. Jesus has ingeniously sort of book-ended these beatitudes with matching promises so that we know everyone from the poor in spirit in the first beatitude to the persecuted for righteousness sake in the final beatitude and all the ones in between. These are the same people. They're receiving the same promises. They have uh, the same characteristics. He's not describing different sets of individuals, each one of them having some of these qualities. These are the character qualities of a single group of people, the pure-hearted and the peacemakers and the poor in spirit and the persecuted, they are all the same people. Question two, who are these people? I mean, if this is describing a single group of people, can we identify that group of people? Yes, we can. Because Matthew does it for us. Back up to verse one. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. So just picture this. At the end of chapter 4, Matthew tells us the Lord Jesus traveled around the villages of Galilee, teaching and preaching and going into the synagogues and people flocked to him. They were bringing 
those who were sick, those who were diseased, those who were lame, those who were demon-possessed, and Jesus was, was healing and addressing all the needs, and word spreads. And as more word spreads, more people come. And then seeing the crowds, Matthew says in verse 1, seeing those crowds, Jesus went up a mountain. And gathering around him then, up this mountain, there are two sort of concentric circles of people closest to him, are his disciples, and beyond them is the rest of the crowd, and Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's teaching those who are in the closest group. His disciples came to him, Matthew says, he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, was everybody else listening? Sure. We know when the message is done in Matthew 7, at the end of that chapter, the crowd not only heard, but they were astonished at what they heard. It's not like the teaching of Jesus is intended to be kept secret. It is open for all to hear and to listen, but it's also evident that only the disciples of Jesus are the ones being directly addressed. And so let me, let me make a parallel here that might make sense, I hope. When we come here and we assemble as the Lord's church, we are assembling as, we are coming together as disciples of Jesus. And yet within our circle, listening in, we know there are some who are not disciples of Jesus. Now let me just say, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I've been where you're at. I have sat in the pews as not a disciple of Jesus, knowing that I belong and I don't really belong. It's not a bad place to be. But the purpose of our assembly is for the disciples of Jesus, those who have been saved by faith in him, to come together and to worship him. The messages that we teach from Scripture are to instruct disciples how to live for him. We're not offering worldly wisdom and, and good advice. This, the church's goal is not to be a, a life coach for unredeemed people. At the same time, you will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be invited to repent of your sins and to trust in him and to join in with us as disciples who worship and, and learn from him. It's good for others to be here, but unless they repent and trust the Lord Jesus, they're going to continue finding the preaching to be impossible to apply since it is for believers, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is talking about believers. Which brings us to question number three. What does Jesus mean that these people are blessed? I mean, that's what this is all about, right? We call these the Beatitudes, which is the Latin word for blessed. And the original language, the text is in Greek, and the word is makarios, and so sometimes these will be called macarisms, and that's never really caught on. So they're always going to be beatitudes. This word in, in some modern translations is, is termed happy instead of blessed. It says happy. In fact, the King James translators make it happy in Acts 26, verse 2, when the Apostle Paul is defending himself and says, I, I am happy, consider myself happy to be able to offer a defense. Or even in, in John 13, verse 17, Jesus uses the same word again and says, if you know my commands and teachings, you're happy if you do them. 
So this word does include the idea of happiness, but it's more than that. Ultimately, to be blessed goes beyond happiness. While certainly those who are blessed by God will be and should be happy, happiness is based on a person's circumstances. That's what the word happy means. It comes from happenstance, circumstances, the things that are happening to you. The circumstances of an individual who are poor in spirit is not happy. The the circumstances of a person who's mourning is not happy. The, The circumstances of a person who's persecuted for righteousness sake, it's not happy. But the description here is not of a person's circumstances. It is detailing an individual's character. Instead, blessed is the right term. To be blessed means essentially to be approved, to be looked on with approval by God. Just consider the way that that we even use the word blessing in, in our culture today. When back, you know, several years ago when I was talking to my future father-in-law about the possibility of marrying his daughter, I asked for his blessing. I wasn't asking, would you make me happy? Parenthetically, let me say, it has made me very happy. (laughs) But that's not what I meant when I was asking for his blessing. What we mean by that is, can I have your approval? Would you look on this with your approval? Similarly, this this blessedness that Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes is a description of God's approval. It it reminds me of the the prayer that was was given to the priests to to pray over the children of Israel in Numbers chapter 6. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Adam and his sons. This is how you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you. And keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And they'll put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. And so to be blessed, as Jesus describes, is to have that countenance of God, the face of God looking on us. Or or just say it this way, it is to have the conscious smile of God on your life. It is an approval of God. Question four. Is Jesus showing us how to earn the blessing of God? It has been interpreted that way. As if In the Beatitudes, Jesus is giving a list of commands here and says, if you want the blessing of God, then this is what you have to do. If you want to be comforted, then you have to mourn. If you want mercy, you have to be merciful. If you want to see God, you have to be pure-hearted. And y'all, you can learn some good lessons that way, but ultimately that application cannot be applied through all the Beatitudes. For example, what about the final beatitude? Being persecuted for the sake of righteousness is not something you can do. It's something that's done to you. You cannot earn the blessing of God. 
So remember the, remember the audience for this sermon. Jesus is teaching his disciples, right? And, and, and what he's teaching them is not, well, here's what I want you to do. Instead, what he's teaching them is, here's what you are. Remember the, the, the context, the overall context and the story that Matthew has been telling since the beginning of his gospel is Jesus is king. John and Jesus both come saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just before this, in chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And now he begins by this, with this sermon by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But in doing this, talking about the kingdom all the time, he's, he's talking to a crowd of Jewish folks whose messianic expectation includes victory over our enemies and material rewards. And instead of that, Jesus is describing the character qualities of kingdom citizens. And it is all topsy-turvy and upside down from what they expect. King Jesus does not hide what it means for us to serve him. Now, I don't know at what point his disciples as they were listening to this, started to grasp that Jesus wasn't just talking to them, but he was talking about them. I'm certain they got it by the time the Beatitudes were done because Jesus made sure of it. When, when, the, when the sermon starts, right, the disciples might have had some doubts. Like, who is it he's talking about? Because as Jesus begins wording the Beatitudes, he is intentionally and wisely vague Right, He keeps using terms like those who, non-specific stuff. In verse 3, theirs is. In verse 4, those who. In verses 5 through 9, they shall. In verse 10, it's even blessed are those, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus ingeniously lays out all this, these beatitudes in non-specific terms so that at the end, he can, he can really drive it home. We said early, earlier that, that verses 10 through 12 are all the one final beatitude. Verses 11 and 12 sort of explain that final beatitude in verse 10. So just listen, as you get all these non-specific terms, even in verse 10, it's blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Maybe the disciples sitting there were listening, who is this talking about? Verse 11. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Who's this all about? It's about you. Right? My friends, disciples of Jesus, this is about you. You have the right to know that when you turn over your, your passport from the kingdom of darkness and, and, and accept the citizenship in Christ's kingdom, this is your life. And yes, in some ways, these are characteristics that we, we should strive for. We should read these and say, I'm not what this describes and I need to do better. But ultimately... This is not a list of things for you to strive for. This is not a list of commands telling you, here's what to do. 
this explains to Jesus' disciples, this is who you are now. And so King Jesus will go on in verses 13 and 14 to say, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This is who you are as a disciple of Jesus. And you need to embrace this truth so that when the world starts reviling and mocking and rejecting you and claiming that your ideas of blessedness are all upside down, you know better. These beatitudes help kingdom citizens make sense of why it is that life as a disciple of Jesus often seems topsy-turvy and and upside down and counterintuitive. These things, they are not qualities that the world admires, but they are characteristics of Christ's citizens. And only citizens of Christ's kingdom will really understand when they know that they're spiritually bankrupt, profoundly sad, constantly accepting the mistreatment of the surrounding world, when you are discontent because the righteousness that you are striving for always feels like it's just outside of your grasp, you are blessed. You have the Father's approval. The conscious smile of God is on your life. Okay, oh, that's a lot of introduction. So I want to take a little bit of time to, to review each of these characteristics in just a small bit of detail. We're going to leave a lot on the table, right? What do each of these mean? Well, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is describing a, a spiritual poverty. A while back, I had a talk with a man who I would describe as sort of curious about Christianity. The way he worded it was, I think maybe I need to get back in church like I had, was when I was a kid. In the course of that conversation, he assured me, I've got a lot to offer. I didn't know how to tell him. No, you don't. Neither do I. <laughs> Neither do any of us. Jesus is not interested in what you can do for him. You have nothing he needs. He has everything you need. Poor in spirit is describing this complete poverty, spiritually bankrupt. Every person who comes to Jesus in faith comes empty-handed, clinging to nothing but the promise that he will forgive you and accept you into his kingdom. In verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning is describing sadness, but not just sadness. It's specific to mourning over sin. Not doing what the world does, because the world laughs over sin and embraces sin and excuses sin. The character of kingdom citizens' regard to our sinful lives is to look at our sin and have a sense of mourning, this deep sadness, this profound grief, and the only comfort we find is in the presence of God. In verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is so often misunderstood because the world 
does not see meekness as a positive quality. The world and even us, very often we equate meekness with weakness. This word does mean to be gentle, but it does not mean to be weak. My favorite example of this outside of Scripture is this word gets used to describe a well-trained war horse. Is a war horse weak? No, it's strong, but it can be gentle. Within Scripture, maybe the easiest way to picture it is that the Lord Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke, right? Fix yourself to me and pull together. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly at heart. You want to attach yourself to someone who's weak? No, he's strong, but he's meek. He's gentle. Meekness is strength under control. The meek are not self-assertive empire builders or earth shakers. They can be right and know that they're right and yet not assert their own advantage. And by expressing humility and, and gentleness, they yield to others and there is great gain to be had in the process. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it to give to whomever he wills. And he says the meek will inherit the earth. Verse 6 picturesquely describes those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is it that a citizen in Christ's kingdom craves? When you look at your life and you see your spiritual poverty and you mourn over sin, a disciple of Jesus yearns for, they desire Righteousness, we must have it. We are starving for it. In the words of Psalm 63, 1, my soul thirsts for God in a dry and parched land where there is no water. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you have this yearning desire for righteousness that is not within your grasp, but that desire can be fulfilled with the righteousness of King Jesus alone. And in this beatitude, he promises You hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. Verse 7 says, The merciful are blessed, for they will obtain mercy. To be merciful is to emulate a characteristic of the God who is rich in mercy. This mercy can be to those who are suffering in this life, Or it can be mercy ascribed to to those who uh, have a forgiving spirit toward those who wrong you. Jesus expressed mercy towards those who crucified him. Stephen mirrored that toward those who stoned him. Every citizen of Christ's kingdom will show mercy knowing how deeply we need the mercy of God. Verse 8 commends God's blessing for the pure-hearted. This one seems like more of a puzzle because pure-hearted, you go out into the world at large and talk about being pure-hearted, that sounds like a good thing. But think about this in terms of the audience to whom Jesus is preaching. 
right? We know, we talked about last week, he is leading up to that big statement in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven, right? And so your righteousness has to be greater than the scribes and Pharisees, but he begins by this statement of commending the pure in heart, the religious leaders of Israel, the scribes and Pharisees had virtually no interest in purity of heart. Their sense of purity was all external, right? You want to you have purity? You want to be righteous? Don't go to that place. Don't touch that thing. Don't talk to that person. Don't say those words. Jesus is going to tell you, God judges your heart. And if you want the conscious smile of God in your life, there has to be purity in heart. And only the pure in heart will stand before God and see him face to face and have that approval. Blessed are the peacemakers, says verse 9, for they shall be called the sons of God. I guess I picked a bad Sunday to preach about contending for the faith in the first service. Being a peacemaker is not a guarantee that you will have peace. It just means that you don't seek after strife. You don't cause it. This is not seeking peace at the cost of truth. You strive, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, verse 18, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all people. By seeking peace and reconciliation, we emulate the perfect Son of God. Jesus, He is the the Prince of Peace. He has reconciled us to His Father. And by emulating that perfect Son of God, we can be, verse 9, called the sons of God. The final beatitude, blessed are the persecuted. But look at verse 10. This persecution does not come as a result of your obnoxiousness. Being ridiculed on social media over your political opinions is not a sign of being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Right? This is not persecution because you deserve it. Right? We have our own faults and, and failures and selfishness. We've got to be honest. Sometimes we got hostility coming to us. This is persecuted for the sake of righteousness. This is, in fact, a callback. Jesus has already talked about this, right? The fourth beatitude up in verse 6. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. You want righteousness. The Lord Jesus will give you righteousness. But when you receive it, You can expect to be persecuted for it. The Apostle Paul echoes this idea in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. He says, all those who will or all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will endure persecution. But also, right in this beatitude, Let's just ask where our righteousness comes from. Right? As we, as, as we just look at this as a, a comprehensive list, where does righteousness come from? It doesn't come from within us, right? The, the beatitude we've already read, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You have an intense 
desire for it, but you don't have it yourself, you will be filled. Righteousness will be given to you. And then when we get to the last beatitude, when you're persecuted for righteousness sake, the end of verse 11, Jesus calls that for my sake. So let's just make a definitive statement right here. Every citizen of Christ's kingdom knows that Jesus alone is our righteousness. And only through him will we see the kingdom of heaven. And so this is what the Beatitudes are all about. We have left a lot on the table. I encourage you, come back and enjoy the leftovers. Read these contemplate them, use them as a challenge. This should describe you, does it? Use them as encouragement because Jesus promises the the kingdom and, and comfort and righteousness and mercy. He promises that you will see him face to face in the Beatitudes. And use them as comfort. So if my hope for you is fulfilled and you find yourself spiritually bankrupt and profoundly sad, willingly returning humility and meekness instead of asserting your own rights, you find yourself every day longing for righteousness that seems just outside of your grasp because you are not good enough, if you find yourself being the target of the world's animosity because of your loving service to Messiah King Jesus, take heart. The conscious smile of God is on your life. It is this wicked world that we live in that is upside down. Not you, you are blessed. Verse 12, rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Right? Be glad, exceeding glad. It's always been like this. Jesus says, rejoice. Even the prophets who received God's promise of the coming king, the very promises that the people who hated Jesus claimed to embrace, those prophets experienced the same thing. But nothing that this world can ever do to you will change who you are in Jesus. This is who you are. Friends, there is a great reward awaiting us. And if displaying these Christ-like character traits in this world seems upside down, right? If it, if it seems wrong to you to, to suffer for the sake of righteousness as citizens of Christ's kingdom, Just watch until we get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew and see how it is the world treated the king himself. This, this is what makes our lives make sense. Jesus takes this thing that seems counterintuitive and seems all backwards and upside down and he uses it to set us right and says, no, this this is the way it's supposed to be. This is how Life as a citizen in Christ's kingdom should look. So rejoice, exceeding glad.